So the first university dining hall in the nation to go totally plant-based was in Texas. And it performed so well, it had gone from 175 transactions to over 400, and then um, later to over 1,000. I'm, I'm sure that that number is consistent to this day, um, because not because you know people um, necessarily were demanding it, but because the food was so good, and it was something interesting and really delicious. And so that food service director um, who switched that dining hall over to entirely plant-based, we recruited him to come and work at HSUS so that we could get him to help institutions all over the world with doing the same thing. And we eventually hired their chef as well so that she could teach other chefs how to cook plant-based and replicate the success that they had at the University of North Texas. Hi there, Veggie Mates. You just heard from Christy Middleton. She is our special guest today. I'm your host, Matthew Davey, and this is the Veg Talk Podcast. It's great to be back for another week of the show with you. I hope you're well and feeling great wherever in the world you're tuning in from. We're currently in the Bay Area of California, and it's been an awesome round of recording here. I'm really looking forward to bringing you episodes over the next month. We're kicking it off today with Christy Middleton, who has worked for companies such as PETA, the Humane Society, and currently Rebellious Foods, who are a startup focusing on chicken nuggets, patties, and strips made from plants. They are becoming a part of meal schedules in schools, hospitals, corporate cafeterias, and restaurants, with the goal of replacing chicken products that come from an animal. Their product is obviously 100% vegan, it's cholesterol-free, made with no antibiotics or hormones, and absolutely delicious. Certainly a step in the right direction for chickens who have the least welfare protection globally. Christy also has a fantastic book called Meatless. It's an amazing resource for anyone who you know considering a plant-based diet or even looking to add a few plant-based meals to their week. Today we chat about her background growing up in Virginia, the lecture from a college professor that led to her taking animals off her plate and ultimately kickstarting her career, saving animals, and also helping people to adopt plant-based diets. I hope you enjoyed today's show, guys. I'll catch you all on the other side. I'm Roland as well, and we're here in Oakland, so just outside of San Francisco. It's a hot day today, Christy. Beautiful Oakland, yes. Unusual weather here. So today, guys, we're with Christy Middleton. Uh, you might know her from her work at the Humane Society or her new switch to Rebellious Foods. She's also an author of the of the book Meatless. So Christy, thanks for making the time today and coming on the show. You bet. Thank you so much for coming over. Not not a worry. Yeah, we're loving it here. It's good to it's good to be back in the Bay Area. We haven't been here since oh, January, maybe late December. So yeah, we're we're stoked to be back. Let's start with I think just a little bit about your background. Uh, I know you're not a California girl originally so it'd be great to hear a little bit about you know your background and yeah your relationship with food growing up and maybe how you got on this vegan path you bet well i grew up in chesapeake virginia which is on the border of north carolina so not necessarily the hotbed of vegan activism there, at least not when I was growing up. In fact, my dad used to hunt, and he still may today. We don't talk about it, um, but uh, he has very fond memories of taking me with him into a 
tree stand to show me what you do when you shoot a deer but we just ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches instead Um, but growing up we had lots of animals we had three dogs we had fish birds uh, all kinds of different animals so I grew up as an animal lover and I remember very clearly as a young girl um, my sister taunting me over one of my favorite foods at the time which was eggs and she said to me you know what those are right and of course, I had no idea what she was talking about. And she said, dead baby birds. So at the time, I decided I was no longer eating eggs. I had no idea if she was accurate or not. But I just knew that I didn't want to eat any dead baby birds. So I stopped eating eggs as a young kid, although they were still in some of my favorite foods, like cakes and cookies and things like that. But if it was a scrambled egg or a fried egg, and I could tell that it was an egg, I wouldn't touch it. Um, It wasn't until I was in college, though, when a college professor was describing euphemisms, and the one that she um, gave as an example was meat, and she said that if we called meat what it actually is, which is the flesh of dead animals, rather than putting it in this tidy package, meat, uh, probably far fewer people would actually want to eat it. And she was right about me because every time I would sit down and try to eat meat after that, I couldn't do it. I pushed it away and eventually decided I was going to be a vegetarian, even though I didn't know a single other vegetarian. Yeah, that's, I think that's such a cool story. I mean, kids, I think kids are inherently compassionate when they're, you know, brought into the world and they see animals, they definitely want to love animals and pat animals and, you know, they're, they're happy to be around them. So I think the last thing that kids want to do is, you know, actively go out and choose to eat them. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting about what you just said is that, you know, you had those experiences growing up. Your sister told you what eggs were and you didn't necessarily want to go hunting with your dad, PB&Js instead. And then, yeah, later in life, getting to college and hearing that, that speech or that snippet, that soundbite from your college professor really sunk, sunk in with you and resonated with you. What was it like in between that? Were you kind of forcing yourself to have meat on the plate or did you avoid it? How, how was it when you were you know, in your teen years and, and into college? Yeah, you know, I really never was a big meat eater. Um, I did enjoy chicken nuggets or things that weren't obvious that they were from an animal. But if my mom, especially when I was a little kid, if my mom was making something like peppered steak, I would eat the vegetables and the gravy and avoid the steak. Um, In fact, later she would make me peppered steak without the steak. And it's now one of our favorite dishes since there are so many awesome plant-based meats on the market. We can just substitute one of those. Um, And then pre- Uh, processed, ready to heat and serve chicken nuggets were available. If she was making chicken, she had to make some special chicken nuggets for me because if it had a bone or a vein or anything that was obvious was from an animal, I wouldn't eat it. So I think um, to your point that, you know, when, when kids can relate one, you know, a food to an animal in a lot of instances, 
we don't want to take part in that process. And I don't think it's exclusive to kids. I think that most of us really do care about animals and we don't want them to suffer, but we get used to this notion as we get older that it's just what we do and that we need to. And I think that's one reason that you know people continue to eat meat because they don't have to think about it, especially in this day and age when we're so far removed from our food production system. Yeah, that's true. I couldn't agree more there. I think... Yeah, we just we're just so disconnected, so disconnected mm-hmm. from the the places where our you know air quotes food is coming from, and yeah, it's, it's it can be wrapped up in packages like chicken nuggets, mm-hmm. you know, with nice shiny marketing slogans on the front and you know that kind of stuff. So we're we're definitely able to disconnect, not think about it, and just yeah, we think it's what we're meant to be having. So why not? You know, we're, we're meant to be consuming it. Right. And of course, big food companies do their best to ensure that we don't think about it by, you know, putting it in those tidy packages, or if it is from an animal, putting happy cows or pigs or chickens on the packaging to give us the assurance that the animals were well taken care of, or um, we don't have to think about the way that they may have suffered. So simple. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's such a, a simple way to pull the wool over the eyes of people, you know, just a, a happy animal on the, on the, on the front, you know, of the carton or the, the package of, you know, the milk or the meat, whatever it might be. And we just believe that. Yeah. I think we yeah. want to believe it wanna, because yeah. um, we don't want to think about animals suffering and because we like the way that it tastes. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. It sounds like. Totally. Totally. So when you come home from, you know, the college lecture, let's say, mm-hmm. and you're deciding to go vegetarian, you know, in the in the the south part of Virginia, near North Carolina. I mean, now it's still probably not like the hotbed of vegan activity, as you you know, as you said before. And this is 20 years later. What was it like coming home and being like, "Hey, mum and dad, I I think I'm going to do this." Was there any pushback, or were they interested? How how did they take it? They were pretty supportive in spite of my dad being a hunter. I think that in in that instance, and probably a lot of people's experiences, people think it's a phase, you know, just do your thing for a little bit and you'll go back to eating meat. But um, they were they were supportive and we found other things that I could eat. And this was definitely at a time when, um, you know, there was vegetarian food available, but it was, wasn't nearly as widely available as it is today. Um, the veggie burgers that were in the marketplace would come from a cardboard box that you had to, you know, tear the bag open inside and add water, form your little patties, and they didn't taste that great as you can imagine. And I remember getting hummus that was in the same fashion. It was a powdered mix. You'd add some water to it and you'd have hummus. Um, so, you know, I just experimented with a lot of different plant-based foods. I tried to be vegan and I tried rice milk for the first time. Still not my favorite plant-based milk. It just tasted like water. So I thought, yeah, I can't do this. I loved cheese and, you know, macaroni and cheese. That was definitely a staple of my vegetarian diet. Um, but, you know, I, I started adding new things to my recipe repertoire. I learned about nutritional yeast and started using chickpeas. And my family adapted along with me. They didn't partake, uh, but they would definitely support me and my mom would you know if I was around she would make me vegetarian food that's cool yeah I mean that's that's a nice kind of 
environment to transition in, I suppose, when you've got the support uh, of your family and, and you're able to at least experiment in the house and there's no real no real like pushback or or arguments coming from the people that you, that you love were you were you trying to influence them in any way or were you were you kind of like laid back about, about the whole thing I was not laid back about it at all. Um, so, you know, I, I became vegan shortly thereafter, and, and I can share a little bit about that experience. Um, so I was in Virginia, and shortly after I became vegetarian, PETA decided to open its headquarters office in the area, and I started volunteering there. I remember going in, and you know, it's much to my chagrin, even to this day, I remember telling somebody at their holiday party that I could never be vegan, <laughs> and that just still um, gets under my skin that I was that person. Um, but after being there and learning about factory farming, which I should add, I knew absolutely nothing about when I became vegetarian. I just knew that I didn't want to eat animals. So I started volunteering at PETA, started watching videos, I started reading, and I decided that I had to become vegan and that that's what I wanted to devote my life to doing was ending animal suffering. And so I was definitely, um, I wouldn't say an angry vegan, but somebody who just couldn't stop talking about it and judging everybody and being very frustrated by the people who I knew I loved who were compassionate people who shared the same experience that I did with our dogs and cats at home. I was watching the videos and being very in your face and it didn't really work. <laughs> Probably no surprise, but I am happy to report that several years after I, I think I mellowed out a little bit, my sister and her husband watched Meet Your Meat, a PETA video, and they decided to become vegetarian and they've raised their kids vegetarian. And that's probably like 15 years ago or so. So it's um, definitely stuck. My mom and dad still working on them, but they're still very supportive. And whenever I go visit, we go to our favorite Thai restaurant and everybody at the table gets the exact same dish, which is garlic tofu. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So, yeah. I mean, small steps, I suppose. So yes, yeah. Yeah. Keep working away and you never know. Indeed. Yeah. I'm not giving up on them. Yeah. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Don't give up. No, but we're not watching Meet Your Meat for, you know, family gatherings anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Sit everyone down and I mean, we've, we've done similar things. Like if, if mom and dad come over for, you know, a holiday, we might find ourselves watching Cowspiracy or <laughs> right. what the health you you guys have got to watch this. Yeah. And yeah, I think maybe the attention, the attention kind of wavers, you know, when people are forced to, to sit down and watch something that they know is going to be basically, I don't know, teaching them a new way of eating, living, and they feel mm -hmm. like it's like forced upon them to adopt this lifestyle. So we've mm -hmm. also steered away from that kind of stuff. Yeah, it can uh, be a little guilt-inducing and yep. nobody wants to be guilted into it. True. Yeah. But something that I found really interesting is my sister's in-laws um well my sister is vegetarian she has a sister-in-law who is vegan and now i think their other sister-in-law is vegetarian so it's you know many people in the family and when um forks over knives came out 
my sister's parent uh, in-laws watched that and they were like, did you know that by adopting a plant-based diet, you can reverse your diabetes? And we're all like, yeah, we knew that. So sometimes I think people just have to discover it on their own yep. and they're a little more receptive and feeling totally. like it's being forced on them. Yep. That's, that's definitely, definitely the way we've seen it at least mm-hmm. um, in, in our experience. And we've gone through, well, at least me, I think. Anna was quite good from the beginning, from the get-go, but I wasn't so good. I was a bit more, you know, forceful. So mm-hmm. learnt, I learned it the hard way and, you know, now it's it's clearly, it's paying off now in, in terms of my parents and um, other family members, friends that I've heard from. They're like, oh yeah, I've, I'm a vegetarian now or I'm uh, thinking about going vegan whatever it might be so it's really cool to see yeah but i think that many people just have to come to that on their own you know so many of us when we learn we are just outraged that we could have been participating in this system and how could we have not known about this and we want to just tell the entire world so i think it's something that we just you know as much as we want to caution other new vegans don't be like I was. It's it's kind of difficult to True. do that. <laughs> you, you can't even yeah. You can't even get the I suppose the the message out to the new vegans. Even if you warn them, it's likely that it's just gonna bubble under their skin, <laughs> right. and they're not gonna be able to to stop the you know the urge to speak about it when maybe it would be better to to let it go. So I think everyone's in that learning phase where the, the it doesn't matter what side of the you know the coin that you're on i suppose now you said that you chose consciously to dedicate your life to to saving animals mm-hmm. so what did that look like for you in terms of looking for work outside of college did you know outside like as soon as you were finished that okay i need to f- get myself into an organization where i really am uh, making a difference I did, yes. Yep. So I was really fortunate to be right where PETA's headquarters opened. And at the time, this was 1998, uh, there, really, there, there were other animal protection organizations, but the opportunity to work full-time in animal rights, there, there weren't very many organizations, and I wanted to stay near my family. And so my last semester in college, I continued volunteering at PETA, and as soon as I was done, I applied for a job and essentially would have taken any job that they offered me. And initially, I worked in their print publications department where I was helping with their magazine or leaflets and getting quotes on paper and um, quickly was a little bored by that. I wanted to be on the front lines and I wanted to be doing something that was, I felt like, um, not that doing the other behind the scenes work isn't effective, but I really wanted to be doing something that was a little more active. And so um, I started going to protest whenever there was a protest that somebody was organizing and they were looking for volunteers. I would do that and um, decided to apply for a job in their campaigns department. And so I was there for about five years. Um, I was there to two different stints, and I can share a little bit more about that. But um, I worked on anti-fur campaigns. Uh, I was a lettuce lady for a little bit, Um, worked on their animals and entertainment campaign. So essentially whatever kinds of, you know, 
we worked on um, anti-vivisection or animal testing campaigns. And really, wherever they needed help, I would you know, go and organize protests or get other activists to come out and support us and you know, make phone calls. Uh, we were just getting the Internet around this time, so mobilizing activists to get involved in online campaigns as well. Cool. I think the first time I heard of Peter and maybe saw one of their campaigns, I mean, I definitely wouldn't have been a vegan at this point. Um, it's possible that other people share the same kind of opinion is it often gets a bad rap, mm-hmm. uh, the, the company, the organization in the public. Why do you think they often cop a bit of heat for the type of campaigns that they put out into the public? I think that their campaigns can be very in your face. And I, you know, it's an organization that got my, my start in this movement. It's, you know, really how, what opened my eyes and how I learned about animal exploitation and abuse and decided that I needed to be part of the solution. Um, and I think that they had been incredibly effective at getting people's attention. And in order to do that, I remember watching a documentary about Ingrid Newkirk, the founder and president, and, um, you know, she just needed to do things that, like get media attention because otherwise people wouldn't know and i think that that still can be part of their campaigns it's um you know these days there are organizations that are trying to focus on things that they feel like are actually having a bigger tangible impact and i i don't really pay that much attention to peta's campaigns anymore but it seems as though they're still trying to shock and provoke and um and be provocative and get people's attention and i think that sometimes it can have a negative reaction Reaction that people can respond very negatively to it. Um, and also, I think that, you know, people just still, they don't want to think about the things that they're doing that might be causing animals to suffer. And so if it's, you know, somebody who's wearing a fur coat and um, a PETA activist says something to them, or, you know, they see an advertisement that it's, it is guilt inducing, which we now know doesn't necessarily equate um, a, an effective tactic that changes people's minds, or at least not immediately. Yeah, I think that's m- more to the point, like, it might be negative on the day that that person sees uh, the billboard or the the street activism, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. But it, it could also be, you know, a seed in the back of their mind mm-hmm. that kind of stays there, even though if it's a little bit uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, regardless of their tactics, I think it's important that, that they're there and they're taking the route that they're deciding to take, which is the more kind of shock in your face yeah. uh, style. Yeah. And so many of the people I know who are in the animal protection movement and who've been doing this work for a couple of decades, they learned about factory farming because of PETA or they got involved because of PETA. So I feel like the organization has done tremendous good for the world for animals. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. I, Mm -hmm. yeah, I totally agree. Now, leaving PETA, Mm -hmm. And, and deciding to take, you know, a new step in your, in your professional career, what did it look like for you then? Did it, 
leave you in Virginia or was this the point where <laughs> we found the, the sun and the, and the beach in, in California? Right. Well, I'll fast forward a little bit. Yep. So I uh, worked in another organization, In Defense of Animals, um, that's actually based here in the area. And then I uh, was there for a few years, worked on a variety of campaigns, you know, s- somewhat similar. And then I went back to PETA and ran its Animals and Entertainment campaign. Um, all that was here in the Bay Area. And then uh, after working there for a couple of more years, I got a call from a former PETA colleague who um, was then at the Humane Society of the United States and was working on um, factory farming campaigns. And they were, at that point, really starting to ramp up corporate campaign efforts where they were helping some of the world's biggest food companies move away from eggs from caged hens. And I had been following their work and thought that it was tremendously focused and very effective and he asked if I would consider coming and joining the team and after a lot of deliberation I decided that it was an opportunity that I couldn't say no to and so I joined the team at um, HSUS and I actually moved back to the DC area to take that job and lived there for a year and then came back out this way to work remotely for the organization. So I worked on corporate campaigns for probably about a year and a half where we were um, reaching out to food companies and urging them to move away from eggs from caged hens. And then we're also working with institutions like universities and hospitals and others that bought a lot of eggs. We were also working on um, anti-gestation crate efforts and trying to help get companies that use gestation crates. And for your listeners, um, I don't want to presume that they know what either battery cages are or um, gestation crates. So a battery cage is what is typically used to confine an egg-laying hen. These are cages that are about the size of a desk drawer and in which uh, about six to eight egg-laying hens are confined. They don't have the space to extend their wings fully without touching another bird or the inside of their cages. Um, They don't have any amenities, nowhere to um, scratch around to take dust baths to lay their eggs in a private nesting box and they're in those cages for about 18 months until they're eventually sent off to slaughter. My next door neighbors have chickens and they used to come over and visit me until the dogs started roaming around the property Um, and the chickens have these incredible personalities. They are inquisitive, they're interesting, they love spending their days taking dust baths or pecking around the yard and when you think about their lives compared to these birds who can barely take you know, a few steps around this cage, it's really hard to imagine a more miserable existence. Um, gestation crates are similarly crates that are used to confine mother pigs. Um, in these cages, though, the animals are solitarily confined. So they are in an individual stall on a concrete slab and they're confined for the duration of their pregnancy, which um, can be about four months, and they're unable to take more than a step forward or backward. That's all they can do for that entire time. And um, they give birth. They're put into a different crate to give birth. They're put back into that gestation crate after they're re-impregnated, and that cycle just repeats itself over and over. And these are very intelligent animals who, you know, in lab tests have been found to outperform dogs and even two-year-olds on playing video games. They come when they're called. And at my time at the Humane Society, we visited a farm that does... um, 
open uh, housing for the, the pigs. And they said that they were so smart that they figured out that um, their ear tags, what were allowing them to go and feed. So they started stealing each other's ear tags. They're very intelligent animals. So just imagine being this incredibly intelligent, sentient being and just being confined in a crate where you can't even move for months on end. So at the Humane Society, um, we were working to try to get corporations to move away from those practices in their supply chain. It's um, terrific. I mean, yeah, thank you for the explanation. It's like uh, it paints a very vivid kind of picture in, in my head and it's just using these animals as, as machines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, basically. And it's so that we can have really cheap food and, and yep. you know, maximize our output but without really considering the animals and the suffering that's involved in, um, you know, in confining them. Uh, I don't think that initially it was a system that was created in order to cause animals to suffer, but it was done during a time when there wasn't a lot of research out there. I think you don't need a lot of research to see one of these animals and to recognize that they can suffer and feel pain as much as they can feel joy and excitement and pleasure, but we didn't know as much then as we know now, and now we know. And now we know that we can do better. Yeah, I think you're certainly right there. We don't need to get bogged down in science. You can go to a farm or you can go to a farm sanctuary and you can see and, you know, look in an animal's eye yourself and see that they, you know, like to be out in the open or they like being with one another. They Mm -hmm. like to be close to their babies or, you know... They just like to be free, I suppose. They like, just want to live their lives, just you, like we do. You don't need a scientific report to, to be able to see that. Um, mm-hmm. That they're much the same as dogs, if not smarter. Yeah, it's a really sad existence for those guys. Mm-hmm. Did, did you see any successes in your time at HSUS in terms of, you know, caged hens, um, pigs, that are confined to gestation crates? Did, were there any like laws passed or were there any farms that decided to, to get rid of those practices? There's been tremendous success, absolutely. So now I've kind of lost track. I think it's now 13 states, maybe even 14 as of uh, two days ago that have passed laws to ban certain forms of confinement. So um, during the last election cycle in California, we passed a law that not only bans the cage confinement of egg-laying hens, mother pigs, and veal calves, but also it makes it illegal to sell products that are produced using those means. So nine years ago, I joined the team at HSUS and, you know, there, I think, were two states that had passed confinement laws at that time. And it's really incredible to see not only are we passing laws to phase out those practices, but also that it will be illegal to sell the products Um, since the California law was passed, um, Washington state, and then just a couple of days ago, Oregon passed similar bills, which is incredibly exciting. Um, During the, the early years when I was at HSUS, um, early years for me, um, we were getting corporations to uh, say that they would commit to going like 2% or um, switch 2 million eggs to cage-free. And now entire companies are saying that they aren't going to use any eggs from cage tens. Now they're setting timelines of like 2022, 2025, but you have to keep in mind that these things take time and that the supply might not even be available for them. And of course, massive companies are also phasing out the use of um, gestation crates in their supply chain. 
and working with their suppliers to phase those things out. And so my involvement in that was just for about a year and a half. And all of the successes that I just mentioned had virtually nothing to do with me. Um, and that's kind of because my focus changed and we were looking at how we could be most effective as a team. And we recognized that a lot of the institutions, the smaller places, the hospitals, or even the restaurant chains that you know, were maybe big in purchasing a decent amount of pork or eggs, but they weren't going to be the ones that um, created the tidal wave. We needed to work with companies like Walmart and McDonald's and get those companies to change their practices in order to get a supplier to change their practices. Because when McDonald's says jump, their suppliers say, how high. And so we realized that we're probably experiencing some diminishing returns working with smaller companies and smaller institutions and decided to kind of refocus our efforts. And what we decided that we should do is really work on reducing overall demand for those products in the first place. And so I was really excited to get to work on, on the thing that really spoke to me, the first reason that I got involved in animal protection, and that was eating more plant-based foods and helping others getting more plant-based foods on their menus. So at the time, I um, started working on our meat reduction campaign, and we started reaching out to a lot of the same institutions that I had been working with on moving to cage-free eggs. Um, we reached out to universities, we reached out to hospitals, and got them to start doing things like Meatless Monday, where either they would offer a special, it didn't necessarily mean their entire menu had to be meatless, but at the time, even getting one option and highlighting that option, we felt like was a success. Or we would work with um, a school district, and very quickly, we got bigger and bigger school districts to go entirely meatless every single Monday. And so, um, quickly we decided that we would expand the team and um, generated a, you know, a lot of excitement around getting more plant-based options on menus. And one in particular that um, was tremendously exciting and successful for me was a university in Texas, the University of North Texas, that I had worked with to get um, their one cafeteria on campus. So they had five dining halls on campus. They decided to switch the eggs to cage-free and then later, the next year, the um, food service director who oversaw that cafeteria called me to say that they were not going to have cage-free eggs on that menu anymore because they were making that entire dining hall vegan. So the first university dining hall in the nation to go totally plant-based was in Texas. And it performed so well. It had gone from 175 transactions to over 400 and then um, later to over 1,000. I'm, I'm sure that that number is consistent to this day um, because not because, you know, people... Um, necessarily were demanding it, but because the food was so good and it was something interesting and really delicious. And so that food service director um, who switched that dining hall over to entirely plant-based, we recruited him to come and work at HSUS so that we could get him to help institutions all over the world with doing the same thing. And we eventually hired their chef as well so that she could teach other chefs how to cook plant-based and replicate the success that they had at the University of North Texas. That's incredible. That is, I mean, my mind is like kind of blown right now. So like the first thing, Texas, like the last mm -hmm. place in the US, one of the last places you would think that would have the first kind of groundbreaking vegan dining hall at a university in the country. That's amazing. Yeah. That's right really, down the street really cool. from the stockyards. Wild. That is wild. Um, and it kind of gets back to 
to what you were saying about you know your work with the pigs and the chickens the accolades might not fall directly on you know on your shoulders but the the work that you began was so important in getting to those stages without the initial work you don't get the the benefits of you know what we're seeing now basically Mm -hmm. where where laws are basically falling like dominoes state by state you've got to start somewhere Mm -hmm. so same thing you know cage-free eggs might have seemed to some like not such a great win for animals but what it's got the ability to do is turn into a fully vegan dining hall which is really cool right yeah it's incredible and you know a meatless monday at one institution can turn into them doing meatless tuesday through friday after that so i think that we have to look at all of these things as baby steps and that incrementalism that can actually affect greater change but without making people um, feel like we can't go from zero to 100 immediately so uh, that's an approach that i definitely think is tremendously helpful is just to you know, meet people where they're at and help them take the first step rather than feeling like they have to get, you know, all the way to, to vegan from, you know, eating a typical American diet. Totally, yeah. totally. And talking about like getting, I suppose, getting into, you know, schools and hospitals. I think I saw somewhere that also the military was, mm-hmm. was part of your work. These are places that we often think of as like you know we were saying before off air that the military are meant to be like our strongest people in the country like protecting the u.s serving the u.s overseas yet the food that they're probably getting fed doesn't necessarily necessarily reflect you know heart healthy food or health promoting food same as hospitals where we're we're trying to rejuvenate people's health we're trying to look after sick elderly people that have gone through emergency, but we're feeding them often with, you know, the standard American diet more or less. And then the same with schools. You've got your kids going to school every day and if they're offered a lunch, you know, I typically here you might, I, I know the bologna sandwich gets thrown around a lot. Um, not Bologna sandwich isn't a term that I used a lot growing up in Australia, but, um, you know, it's definitely one that, that we hear here or getting a glass of milk at, mm-hmm. at a school, stuff like that. So what was it like for you going into these places and saying, Hey, you know, we've got this initiative, this, this program, we'd like to see if it would work, you know, in your school hospital or in your, in your barracks, whatever it might've been. What was the pushback like if there was any, uh, what were some of the obstacles and then eventually what was it like to you know see the implementation of these programs and the and the adoption of these programs i would say early on we started talking to some of the people who had been very kind to us on the cage free campaigns and others um you know that were I would say low-hanging fruit, places that seem like it would be a little easier. In California, there are certain communities that are just a little more liberal um, and would be looking for more of those options. And when we got a few early adopters and could develop some case studies, we would go to conferences and hand out those case studies and hand out recipes and talk to people. And 
bring those people to our conferences and events and help have them talk to their peers about their successes and um, kind of make it seem like it wasn't impossible to show that you could actually do it and that your um, participation wouldn't suffer. And we also learned a lot about the food industry. I knew absolutely nothing about the food service industry when I started doing this work. I still have you know, probably 99% to learn, um, but we started learning about the obstacles and the opportunities and things like plate costs, that they're not going to add a veggie burger to their menu if it costs four times as much as their meat. We had to find solutions that would actually be affordable. We learned about participation, and what that means is um, you know, the number of sales that they're getting, if their participation declines because they're offering something that's um, not something that's desirable to their guests, they're not going to continue doing the program. So we would um, suggest to them how they should name things differently. Don't call it a vegan lasagna. Call it a hearty Tuscan lasagna or um, don't call it a vegetarian casserole. You know, just name it what it actually is without slapping that label in front of it that causes a lot of people to say, oh, I'm not vegetarian or vegan. I'm not going to touch that. And then, of course, um, we, we realized that they needed some skills that most people at institutions don't really know anything about cooking plant-based. They don't know how to describe it to their customers. And so uh, one school district in Texas, they were really excited to work with us on doing uh, Meatless Monday, and they started offering falafel. And their staff that is made up of a lot of people who, from a lot of different backgrounds, they didn't know what falafel was. So when they started describing it to students, they said, it's a bean ball. Who wants to eat a bean ball for lunch, right? And so we would teach them how to actually talk to their students about, or, or their guests in general, about these foods and get them to sample it themselves. And then we started doing culinary training because we learned that if the staff was asked to do something and they weren't actually part of that solution or part of the decision, they were really resistant. What, I have to chop this onion when, you know, I could just be putting some chicken nuggets on a tray and, you know, heating them up. If we involve them in culinary training and talk to them about the reasons that we are serving more plant-based options and that they should be eating more themselves, they actually got really excited about it. And so when the students would come through the line, they would be like, this is a chickpea salad and it's made from these different ingredients and try it. It's really good. Um, So the culinary trainings especially have been tremendously helpful. And we learned that a lot of institutions don't have a lot of staff time. They don't have a lot of cooking equipment. Um, Some schools that we went into didn't even have measuring spoons or measuring cups. And so we learned that they need really easy solutions too. And that kind of took me to the next phase of my career that I'm happy to talk about um, in a moment. But we also wanted to create recipes that were speed scratch or things that, you know, didn't require a lot of staff time or a lot of different um, equipment or different ingredients that they wouldn't be able to access through their broadline distributors. Um, And I would say to this day, that program has been one of the most effective things that I can imagine any organization doing to get more plant-based options on menus. Um, One of the first trainings that we ever did uh, for universities was at Harvard University. And to be able to say at Harvard, we've done plant-based culinary training has been tremendously helpful. And I go to industry conferences to this day and have, um, you know, 
friends now in the industry who we just see year after year who said that that changed the way that they were looking and viewing plant-based food. And it's now become, I would say, not just a core part of institutional dining, at least in higher education. But if you're not doing it, you're going to be left behind. And it's definitely the buzz of industry conferences these days. So I can't imagine saying that 10 years ago. It wouldn't have happened. No, that's really cool. Really cool to hear. I think that, you know, seeing these guys being open to adopt and then it, you know, as you said, it might turn into two days a week, three days a week, four days a week, whatever it might be, or a fully vegan dining hall um, is is incredible. What I was going to ask was, were there any unforeseen benefits for these institutions? So, you know, at the beginning, they're calling things, you know, vegan lasagnas and bean balls and like they don't know anything about plant-based cooking. But as the adoption rate and the, uh, I suppose, the guests at their, uh, their dining halls get more used to it and they're ordering it more often, were they seeing like any financial benefit in the long run um, from adopting more plant-based options? Were they seeing any health benefits from staff or, you know, people that dine there? I don't know. Yeah, anything that they didn't necessarily think would happen in the first place. Yeah, I have a couple of interesting stories I'll share. Um, One regarding like personal benefits. So there's um, somebody who I featured in my book who was the dining services director at American University in Washington, D.C. His name is Ken Chadwick, and he had worked at a lot of different universities in the D.C. area. Um, He was born in um, South America, said that he grew up spending summers on his grandparents' cattle ranch and was a real big meat and potatoes kind of guy and having worked in the food industry for pretty much his entire career, really loved food. He loved everything about food and he his health suffered as a result. He got to be over 300 pounds and he shared that he you know would eat everything and then go home and feel really bad and he would try to go running. He would you know run a mile, uh, had to work up to running a mile and just like collapse for the entire day after that. And his, um, he ended up going to the doctor. The doctor said that he had to have his gall- gallbladder removed and that he might die on the operating table because he was so unhealthy. He was morbidly obese and suffering all kinds of other issues. And his body just felt really bad. So he continued just trying to exercise to maintain his weight um, and not gain any additional weight. And at the same time, when he started at American University, he you know does listening sessions with students and he had students who were constantly saying they wanted more vegan options. And he was like, well, we have a salad bar. And of course, as you know, vegans, that's not enough. We love to eat salad sometimes, but we don't want to eat salad all the time. And so students just kept saying, well, you don't have enough vegan options. We want more vegan options. And so Ken said, you know what? I'm going to go vegan just so I can see what it's like to be vegan on campus and kind of hear what the issues are. And I'm not going to eat from the salad bar so that I can really understand what it's like to be vegan. And so the first day that he ate his vegan diet, not eating from the salad bar, he said he ate pears because they didn't have enough vegan options. Um, Very quickly, he teamed up with his chef and the dietitian on campus, and they decided to come up with a really delicious menu where no matter if you were eating breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert, there were good vegan options. And because he is on campus almost all the time, he was eating vegan when he was on campus. And so very quickly, he started losing weight. 
so quickly, in fact, that they gave him a nickname, the Incredible Shrinking Man. And um, he ended up losing over 100 pounds over the course of this experiment. And um, to this day, still maintains a very healthy lifestyle, was able to go off all of his medication. And um, of course, the students were very happy with the vegan menu that he came up with. And something that was really interesting that he shared was that like for most people, if you tell them the benefits that they're just not going to believe you. You just have to actually try it yourself to see and, you know, to get to feel better and experience that. So Ken, I would say is probably one of the best examples of the health benefits that were experienced by somebody who was working in that industry and who had been, I would say, very reluctant to add more options to menus and didn't really even understand like why a salad bar wasn't a sufficient option, but then started to experience some really great personal benefits. Um, in addition to that, on the financial side, I mentioned the story at University of North Texas. It became very um, not only helpful for them in that particular dining hall, but um, Ken Botts, who ran that program, shared that it was a really good recruitment tool, that they were students who actually came to that university they started enrolled in that university because of the vegan dining hall. And so that's really important to people who are involved in administration. You know, dining services on um, university campuses these days is no longer just about providing food. Now you go into dining halls and it's a gourmet experience in a lot of instances. So they saw that it was actually a good recruitment tool. And then another uh, institution, Canisius College up in upstate New York, um, now somebody who uh, is now working at the Humane Society was there previously as their chef. And they had students on campus who had a veg club. They had a small little um, vegetarian unit on campus. And it was not performing that great. And the veg students kept saying, we want more options. So they uh, made it entirely vegan and just you know put up some new artwork, made it look really pretty. Um, all the desserts were vegan. And they saw a 400% increase in their sales and participation at that unit. And so it was so successful that they decided, why don't we just make all the desserts on campus vegan? Nobody has to know. They're not going to care. And it's still performing very well to this day. And then, of course, the Humane Society recruited that chef because she did such a great job there. So it's also been a good recruitment thing for the Humane Society as well, by the sound of it. Indeed it has. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you have a person who can make a difference on one campus, that's amazing. But if you can use them to go and influence like hundreds of others, you know, it felt like a good trade-off. The other thing is, I think i got to start eating at university <laughs> dining halls. <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, it's gotten a lot better. <laughs> definitely sounds like a really good place to, to eat, especially... If we're on the road, it would be interesting to check one out. I mean, to to hear that it has that much influence on even bringing students to the university. Yeah. That's massive. It so, is. Yeah. yeah. And I think the other really interesting thing about working with K-12 schools and universities is that's where you're forming people's dietary patterns for the rest of their lives. I mean, especially in K-12s, you know, for a lot of kids, you might be very picky when you're a little kid, um, but if you're exposed to really good food, then you're going to be more apt to eat that. And I think that for a lot of us, at least, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, like vegetables were not prepared very well. We had really bad experiences with them, but if we can train the chefs or the cooks 
cooks to cook them very well and experiment with them in different ways and get kids to eat them, they're going to be more likely to eat them throughout the rest of their lives. And in colleges and universities, you're teaching the students habits that are going to you know, affect them when they're heads of households. And they're going to be you know, the, the next generation of people that are going out and buying groceries or feeding their kids. So it's a really critical time to be influencing their diets. No, definitely. Definitely. Having the chefs as the tool is a real game changer. I think mm-hmm. that's, um, I, I don't know, that's where the adoption just picks up and goes through the roof because at the end of the day, you know, if the food doesn't taste good, then no one's going to eat it. So That's exactly right. And that's where the real, I suppose that's where the real change begins to happen is when we actually start practicing I suppose, connecting the values that we have in everyday life with our plate. Mm -hmm. When we connect those dots, that's when the magic happens. That's when, that's when people start to get active themselves. And that's when they start telling their family members. That's when you start seeing someone like, uh, was it Ken that lost, you know, a hundred pounds. You see that in real life. So having, yeah, having the magic on the plate, that's, that's where it all, all begins to happen. It's kind of like a, a full circle kind of moment there. Indeed. Yeah. And it's exciting to see now that it's become such a, a movement in the food and restaurant industry that, you know, going to, I go to this annual conference called Menus of Change. That's part of the Culinary Institute of America and Harvard University. And they're focusing on plant forward diets. And to see these two very influential organizations, um, some of the most influential in the U.S. now really focusing on plant-based diets and to, um, you know, high um, haute couture culinarians like, you know, it's, it's really remarkable how far we've come and um, that, that, that that's what everybody wants to be doing these days. Yeah, it's definitely mm-hmm. mainstream trend. Mm-hmm. But it's a fantastic one. It, you know, it's, it's one that hits uh, a bunch of different levels uh, for positive reasons. Just before we wrap things up, I would love to hear a little bit about your new, your new endeavor at, at Rebellious Foods. So if we can learn just a little bit about Rebellious and what, you know, their aim is to, uh, you know, what they're bringing to the market and, and what they're all about, that'd be, that'd be really cool. I mean, we just tried some of their products and they're pretty damn good. So... Um, yeah, we'd love to hear it. Sure. So at the Humane Society, one of the things that we noticed is that chicken nuggets, patties, tenders are ubiquitous on menus and especially at K through 12 schools. And that's where there's tremendous volume in food services. So New York City Public Schools, for example, serves a million meals every single day. Los Angeles Unified School District, the second largest in the U.S., serves 700,000 menus uh, meals every single day. So that's a lot of meals that are being served. And as I mentioned, a lot of institutions don't have a lot of staff time. They don't have a lot of cooking equipment, and they also don't have a lot of culinary chops. They don't really know much about culinary um, skills, especially when it comes to plant-based food, and they need really easy solutions. They need something that they can just heat up and serve very quickly. And most of them are not serving chicken nuggets because they believe it's a great food to be serving to kids or to patients at hospitals. They do it because it's easy and it's delicious. It's crispy. It's you know tender. You put it in your favorite dipping sauce or you put it on a bun. It's something that people really enjoy. But I don't think that most people eat chicken nuggets or chicken sandwiches because it comes from a chicken. They just do it because it's tasty. And so we started talking to food service 
professionals and saying, if there was a plant-based version of this that tasted just as good or better, that was affordable and that was available through your broadline distributors, the same places that you're currently getting your food, would you serve it instead? And people were absolutely in support of this notion. They're not proud of serving chicken nuggets that are made from ingredients that are probably unrecognizable to most people that are often you know, full of hormones and antibiotics and that are high in cholesterol and saturated fat. That's not something that they feel really good about doing. And so over the course of a couple of years, I thought about starting a company. I talked to many other people and encouraged them to start a company. And I talked to Christy Legale, who at the time was a Humane Society state council member and a Boeing engineer, and she and I worked together to get Boeing to do Meatless Monday. I was kind of there just to provide her some support. Um, So Christy went on to work at the Good Food Institute for a couple of years and um, learned more about the plant-based food industry, and at the same time was devising a plan for how she could start this company. And um, she very quickly figured it out and raised some initial um, angel investment to get the company up and off the ground. And after about a year and a half in or so, invited me to come and join the company so that I could work with our existing partners that I had developed over many years at the Humane Society to get them to buy our nuggets. Beautiful. Yeah, it's it's been tremendous. And um, an interesting thing about the approach is that currently um, plant-based meat accounts for about one-fifth of one percent of all meat because there's just not, we don't have nearly enough of it. And a big part of that is because the manufacturing technology that we're currently using for making plant-based meat is inadequate. Um, we are using off-the-shelf equipment, things that were developed for processing meat that don't necessarily work as well for making plant-based meat. So we're not only making what we consider crispy, juicy, and delicious plant-based chicken products. And currently we're making nuggets, but we're going to be making patties, tenders, and other further processed um, chicken-like products. Um, But we're changing the way that we're producing those. So we're using novel equipment. Christy's background was in uh, manufacturing technology and developing equipment. And so she's looking at the bottlenecks in plant-based meat production and developing equipment that will resolve those and make it cheaper, faster, and what we hope is more delicious too. That's cool. Yeah, I suppose the scalability of everything is super important. When you when you bring that stat up, that's you know, that's kind of mind blowing. Only one fifth of one percent today. Like we see a lot of hype around, you know, the Beyond Burger, the Impossible Burger, other, you know, seafood substitutes, chicken substitutes mm-hmm. like Rebellious. And yeah, to think that it's just such a minuscule um, total, I suppose of the the whole industry is it shows where we need to to be able to get to so that's really cool to hear that she's uh taking that you know taking that project on as as well yeah we're really hoping that we can um you know not only be a solution directly to food service but that we can create you know modularize plant-based meat processing facilities and have them available all across the country maybe replacing chicken chicken processing plants with plant-based meat processing facilities and you know we we see that impossible is running out that there are restaurants that can't access it and that's a good thing and you know it shows that it's very popular 
but we have to change the infrastructure if we want to ensure that we have lots of product that's available to everybody who wants to buy it. And so we, we want to be plant-based meat for everyone. Well, hopefully, hopefully we can get there. That'd be, that'd be really nice. I think that's where we're moving. That's where the world is going. So it's, I think that's great to see. And it's, it's cool to hear about uh, rebellious and yeah, I suppose that the change that you guys are, are making in the industry. Um, I suppose just to wrap things up, the the book mm-hmm. you've authored a book called Meatless. Would you be able to tell us just quickly? We've gone over time a little bit, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, just about the book and I suppose the uh, the problems that you're you're solving with the book. Thank you. Yeah, so I wrote the book a couple of years ago after um, working with so many individuals at institutions, and they were very open to the idea of a meatless Monday or reducing the amount of meat that they were consuming. And I think, you know, having been in the animal protection movement and getting people to try to eat vegan for so long, for me, it had, like for many years, been very black and white. You got to go vegan. But I quickly realized that if people can make a very small change. Many people can make a very small change, um, can obviously add up to make a really big difference. And so I wrote the book because I wanted to give people a resource that gave them permission to do a little bit. Maybe they would eventually go vegan after reading the book, or maybe they would just start doing a meatless Monday or even a meatless Monday dinner. Um, But that it wasn't that you have to go totally vegan. And while there are lots of great books out there about going vegan, there didn't seem to be a lot out in the marketplace that kind of gave people permission to just reduce. So the book examines a lot of the uh, a issues that people are trying to eat less or no meat. It also looks at a lot of the obstacles that people encounter in getting to try to eat less meat and then share some of my favorite tips and recipes for doing so. And a couple of those big obstacles tend to be community. You know, most of us eat like our friends and family, or we don't want to be the black sheep. We don't want to be the person at the restaurant who's, you know, saying, I want this, but without this or this or this, or choosing the restaurant because you you can't eat anything at the other places that people want to go to. So it's not just about um, choosing a community that supports you, but trying to get the support of your friends and family. So, you know, even if they won't go totally vegetarian or vegan with you, you know, will they do meatless Mondays so that you can enjoy a meal together? And it's also about making it part of your identity. You know, if you feel like it's not just a diet, but this is a really core part of who you are, or what you're trying to do, then it makes it a little easier to stick. Um, and, and lastly, it's, you know, making those commitments verbal, you know, talking about them, saying them out loud. Those are really critical things to ensuring that you stick with it. Um, and there are a lot of great resources in the book, um, you know, from friends of mine, other people who have given me advice and support along the way. So I hope that it's been helpful to people and um, that it will continue to be a useful resource. I was going to say that sounds like a fantastic resource. If, you know, if there's any listeners out there that have a family member or a friend, uh, anyone they know that's, you know, curious about trying more plant-based meals or, you know, they've voiced their, um, you know, their wish to to become vegetarian or, or vegan in the future, it sounds like a great book to kind of point them towards. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, you know, very gentle touch, um, but also still what I hope will be a very helpful resource. Yeah. No, that's, that's cool to hear. I think Mm -hmm. I'll definitely start. Yeah. Recommending that because 
we, as we were saying, we're, we're hearing about it more and more. People are, are more curious. It's more front of mind. Uh, but to have the tools and the resources uh, like Meatless is, is a perfect way to, I suppose, get busy in the kitchen and, and, and make some, some meals that uh, put you in that direction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think when we can enjoy delicious meals, kind of to come full circle to our conversation about yeah. culinary with our friends and do it in an environment that's non-threatening and, wow, this is vegan, this tastes amazing, um, then they're more likely to come along and join us on their journey. Totally. Beautiful. Well, Christy, sorry we went overboard, but I really thank you for your time. It was really cool to hear, yeah, about all your work. I mean, it's, it truly is amazing, and I thank you for all that you've done. Uh, it's people like you that have people like Anna and myself doing what we do today. So thank you for your time, and yeah, I'm looking forward to, to getting this one out to the listeners. Thank you. To do this work is really the greatest honor of my life, and I'm feel very good to be able to do it and contribute something meaningful. It's been Thanks, great Christy. talking with you. Cheers. Thank you. Likewise. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed today's show. We really enjoyed meeting Christy and would like to thank her for the time and also the recording space at her home. For those of you who are interested in adding more plant-based options to your week, I'd highly recommend Christy's book, Meatless. You can find out more by heading to her website, Christy Middleton. If you've got any questions from today's show, please head to the VegTalk page on Instagram and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. And if there's ever a guest you'd like to see us meet up with and record a podcast with, let us know and we'll do our best to make that a reality. Next week, we have another exciting show for you with psychologist Malena Escherich. We chat with her about the psychology behind influencing people through our advocacy, and also why humans find it so difficult to change their dietary habits. That's all for today, folks. Keep it plant-based, and I'll see you all next week.